ultimately, it wasn't to be. Nine months of highs and lows, of early cup exits and scintillating attacking performances culminated in a resounding 35-13 loss to Leicester on Saturday that saw Sale miss out on the top six and Champions Cup rugby next season. Instead, the Sharks finished eighth by virtue of Saracen's victory over Gloucester, but Bath's shock victory over London Irish to steal a place in the Champions Cup for next year. We have a full season review scheduled for the coming weeks. However, until then, the Shark Time podcast returns for one last time in 2017-18 to discuss the fallout from that defeat to Tigers. My name is Lewis, and joining me is my good friend, James. James, how are you doing? Very well, mate. The, uh, the old ball patch is feeling a little bit burnt today. Uh, forgot to put the old uh, Factor 50 on, so uh, sort of dosing myself down with moisturiser. Anyway, overshare, early doors, <laughs> there we go. At least, uh, at least you're able to enjoy part of your bank holiday weekend in and around sale, getting thumped and burning your crown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about the game. Well, let's just jump straight into it. And I'm going to start with what might be a bit of a silly question, but looking at the two teams on Saturday and how they performed, was this a case of Sale losing the game, or were Leicester simply just too good for for the Sharks on the day and 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 out outperformed and outclassed them? I thought the Leicester were really up for it, and I thought that the best sort of three players on the pitch were all Leicester players I thought the halfbacks were absolutely fantastic I thought Dan Cole had the best game I've seen him have in any shirt for years um, so I think it's difficult to argue with the with the scoreline um, I think there's reasons why we ended up you know with that scoreline and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that but I think Leicester were the better team so what was it about those three players that, that, that you highlighted? Uh, presumably Ben Youngs, George Ford and Dan Cole that sort of stood out for you compared to everybody else. Well I just felt that the control that their halfback brought and uh, it, it helps when you're winning collisions on the game line but I did think that we were still competitive enough on the game line especially in the first half but you know Youngs' box kicking was absolutely spot on his decision making was there and George Ford looked properly pumped up for this game like really pumped up Maybe he's had a rocket for Medi Jones or something. Go, I don't know, but he was absolutely fantastic. I thought Dan Cole. I thought he was good around the park. You know, it was a really fast-paced game, so it was a difficult game for the props. Um, but I thought that he kept his pace well. Um, he was competitive at the breakdown, and of course, in the scrum, he got one over on Ross Harrison, who I've never seen moved at all. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before. Ross Harrison, he's not a destructive loose head, but nobody pushes him backwards. The problems we tend to have is on the tight head side, um, but Dan Cole like walked through him a few times, so that that was um, I thought it was a phenomenal performance from him. Do you think George Ford had such a rocket up up his ass as as uh, you were implying, just so he could stick the knife in on sale just 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 one more time? You know, having famously, allegedly turned down and moved to sale in favour of going back to Leicester. I mean, it, uh, you didn't interact with the crowd much, but you sort of got the feeling that this was a uh, what could have been performance from, from George Ford, who was, like you said, absolutely superb. Yeah. I think George Ford's had a very difficult season, and so have Leicester. So the thought of not qualifying for the Champions Cup and the team you were going to join uh, qualify probably did really pump him up for this game. Um so, but yeah, he was, he was fantastic. Ben Young's back on form and uh, 
I expect him to go to South Africa and be first choice. On Ford and Young's actually, what I've got written down on my notices and the first thing that I want to point out before we go into some uh, more comprehensive um, game analysis, um, I actually thought the way Leicester's halfbacks played the inside ball out when they were attacking, I thought it was absolutely superb. And I think it gets it's gone a little bit unnoticed. Uh, throughout the season but I think Sales guarding around the rook can be a little bit lackadaisical and Leicester took absolute full advantage of that you look at the Mike Williams try which was ultimately uh, Leicester's three out of the four, uh, three out of third out of four it comes from exactly that it's a slightly loose play comes from a little bit of a line break the, the guarding is all over the place and all it takes is is uh, in that, this instance George Ford going straight to the line sorry no Ben Young's going straight to the line handing off the ball and they go straight through the gap. And it's. I thought you look at where Leicester were coming from in terms of attacking throughout Saturday's game. And the first point of contact was to just run straight down that number 10 channel, engage McGinty, because they knew McGinty was, is, is an abrasive tackle and likes to get his hands dirty. And then just simply pop the ball off. And I think you go back and look at that first try uh, that was ultimately scored by Jonah Holmes. The break first comes from a man into a Lange run. That all starts with Ford getting the ball, going straight to the line, very direct, playing very flat, getting the ball off to Suolangi, allowing his destructive ball carrier to break the line, make a couple of uh, you know make a couple of offloads, and all of a sudden Leicester. And I thought that was something Leicester did very very well. And I thought that was alongside the scrum, the key to their success. It was a very commanding performance from from George Ford, and playing in a way that. Given Sales' abrasive tacklers up front, you, you'd be forgiven for expecting him to sort of sit back in the pocket and try and dictate play uh, from there. But I thought Ford was superb in, in managing the game superbly and, and being the sort of attacking force that Leicester needed to, to, to make inroads on the Sale defence. Yeah, I think you've touched on the, the most important point, which is that Youngs and Ford played what was in front of them. And in a very, very fast-paced game where, you know, forwards are out on their feet, that inside guard often is the weak point. So they were looking up, playing what was in front of them and picking mismatches or making sure they got offloads. And or, you know, people were picking lines off Ford, giving him options. So they they kept their attacking structures even when it was completely frantic. Whereas Sale, um, and we debated this after the game um, as a as a three. But I you know, it, we, we do have attacking structures. We talked about it all year that off the you know, first, second, third phase ball we're very, very, you know, difficult to stop. It's actually when it's multi-phase that we've struggled this year. But we didn't put any phase like initial phase ball together at all. What we did was we flung it wide as as quickly as possible and hoped that somebody somewhere with the ball bobbling around the floor got a break and got a runaway try. But it was I think the the occasion, big crowd, a lot at stake, probably tried to, to we're aiming at trying to beat Leicester by five points to nil in terms of end points rather than thinking well Gloucester have sent not a first choice side Saracens last game of the season so aren't going to get anything um, so all we need to do is win by one point and keep our structures and play a proper game and I just don't think we did that we, we you know I don't blame the coaches at all there's nothing you could do from the stands you know, we were flinging it around all over the place the clerk every time he picked the ball up from the base he was trying to do something special um, you know, I don't want to be too critical to Clerks. I still think he had a good game, actually. Um, but you compare it to Youngs, and they 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 came out, they stuck to the game plan, they looked there, they kept their heads up, uh, and played with the team. Is is that um, the curse? Difference between sides. Is that the curse then of having 
De Klerk and McGinty as your starting halfback combination because of the player De Klerk is he's very energetic likes to get involved early throw some miracle pass, passes whereas McGinty is a lot more I don't want to say he's a slow starter but I think you look at someone like McGinty and the way he plays his influence on the game it doesn't usually get felt until the second half of the first half or the 60 minute mark he seems to be the sort of player and we saw it in the Wasp game as well where he had a very little impact on the game until about 20-25 minutes in where he started to pull the strings a little bit do you think Saturday's performance from the halfback was, was sort of the price you have to pay for having McGinty and De Klerk in the team you have De Klerk who is very frantic and very ambitious with the type of rugby he wants to play and McGinty is someone who perhaps isn't quite the game manager yet that we need him to be to calm De Klerk down put some structure into place and then play the game that suits Sale most naturally because I think we, we see that for 60 minutes a game at home but it seems like there is a recurring theme where we really struggle to, to get ourselves up and moving and get ourselves all singing from the same hymn sheet so to speak at the start of a game and is that where that is that what cost us against Leicester? Well I think it was frantic at the beginning but sometimes these you know end of season games are a bit like that at the beginning but then they usually settle into a rhythm the problem that we had was that we conceded a try and went 7-0 down and we did then get back to 7-6 and at that point I thought right I think the second half is going to be a very different picture it's going to be really attritional because you know we'll, we'll, we'll go in thinking well we just well we're not going to win now by five points to nothing it's very unlikely so we just need to get the win um, and then we were just hit with a hammer blow at the beginning of the second half where you know um, I'm sure we'll get up to three word reviews after, after this but a lot of our listeners did mention that we, we were lacklustre. I really don't think we were lacklustre in the first half. I thought we were completely frantic, 100 mile an hour, throwing the ball around all over the show. It was the structure that was the issue. Beginning of the second half, absolutely, we didn't come out ready for the physical battle. And before we blinked twice, it was like an uphill battle. I think as soon as Leicester's third try, the Mike Williams one, went over to push the game to 20 points to six, you just sort of thought that was it. I think it was disappointing actually because we all predicted this sort of high scoring affair you know four tries to five and to go into that half time only trailing seven six is both a good thing and it was a bit disappointing because it just sort of indicated that we're not going to get the type of game that we were all hoping for but I think to go from that to be very close for the last sort of 20-15 minutes of the first half to then concede two tries in relatively quick succession I just thought after that the way Sale are going to have to get back into this game is just going to open themselves up to more counter-attacks from Leicester and lo and behold that is precisely what happened and I think it was disappointing that in the end a pretty lacklustre start in terms of structure and getting the game management right in the, uh, to start the first and second halves was ultimately what cost Sale on the day uh, but before we go into a little bit more analysis on the game we've, as James Preemptive we're going to get up some three word reviews for the last time this season I am uh, we'll have to do some three word season reviews I think I'm sure there'll be plenty of input on that but until then three word reviews of sales lost to Leicester on Saturday Dave Baldwin bullied front five Callum Lennon sack Steve Diamond I thought that was uh, that was uh, quite a bold take to have at about five past nine on a, on a Tuesday morning uh, Tim Pinder <laughs> television curse returns David Alderson wrong game plan Max Boyle no bench impact I'm sure we'll get onto that later on uh, welcome returns to the pub from Matt Ferguson scrums cost us Ali Baxter top six next Mark Hall poorest looking defence Lavendad line out not straight 
Carol McGuigan, uh, mother of Byron, I love sale. Uh, hard to dispute that one. Uh, rugby sale sharks, not quite there. And, and my favourite one is actually um, from Simon Holman, who says, gain too far. You did sort of get a sense with that, didn't you? This, it was a bit disappointing because given the context, knowing that Gloucester was sending a weak inside to, to Saracens and ultimately got beat uh, quite quite handedly, I was saying it in the stands. It was this was a case of winning. You're in. You know. Ju- you know. Just win by one point, two points. You know, twenty points. It doesn't matter. A winner. You, you've you've got somehow top six rugby for next season, but you got the sort of sense that players were falling off tackles. Are usually sturdy. Scrum was getting marched backwards. De Klerk, McGinty, McGuigan, some of our most consistent players really sort of struggled to make their impact on the game. And, and I think you look at that Leicester team and on paper, it, you know, the, the talent does, does outmatch sales. And I think that's a fair assessment to make. But on form for both teams this season, this should have been a much more competitive game than it was. And you sort of got the sense of fatigue and, and perhaps that shallow squad depth, which means these players are having to play 25, 30 times a season, is it was had finally caught up to sale and we just ran out of gas and in what was probably our most important game of the year yeah and, and I just wonder you know I mean, we, we talked about it before when we were thinking about top, top four we've actually lost our last three games in the premiership um, and we got up for cup finals in each of those games like mentally and we went to Newcastle and we lost in the dying you know again right at the death um, we went to West Ham played really, really well came over with absolutely nothing and I think that coming to get up for a third week, you know, at home to Leicester, it was a game too far, actually. And I don't think, I think there was, like all teams, we were carrying knocks like everybody else. But I don't think it was necessarily the small squad. I think it's the mental thing, wasn't it? It's the mental thing of having to get, you, get yourself up for three games. And I, and I just wonder whether, you know, if we'd won that Newcastle game, you know, uh, we would have ended up in the, in, in the top six. Definitely, we might have even got in the top four. You just these things are funny how they work out. Yeah, unfortunately, we can say that about four or five games over the course of the yeah. season. It's it's a case of if we'd won one of those, maybe maybe things turn out differently. Um, what did you make of Bath actually sneaking into the top six on the on the last day? We'll we'll come back to Sale in a second. Obviously, that was we didn't even discuss it last week. Uh, our discussion on the top six focused on us, Leicester, uh, and Gloucester, and what and what results would have to fall which way. For each team to make the playoffs, but in the end, uh, by a lot of chat, uh, by you know some good fortune and some very, uh, very impressive attacking rugby on on Saturday, uh, Bath snuck in right at the death to snatch six from both Sale and Gloucester. What did you make of that? We we, we did mention it briefly. Uh, we did say that they, you know with five points they're not out of it. Um, but it yeah, was. It was. I mean, I, I mean, I, they're not a top six side, are they, this season? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the, the table, I suppose, doesn't lie. But you know, they, they've, they've been under pressure. Blackout has been under pressure for his job, um, and it's just funny how um, how things work out in the end, isn't it? Playing London Irish at home on the last day of the season probably helps as well. You know, an, an already relegated team throwing out some youngsters. I mean, it's. But I mean, every, every team has to play each other home and away, so you can't point at the fixture list and say they, they got an easy ride. It wasn't a case of that because Sale played London Irish home and away this year and picked up plenty of points. So it's it's surprising. Yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those. I mean, I suppose we'll talk about it in the season review. But you know, us and in comparison to Newcastle as a season, there isn't a better one because Newcastle have won every single close game, every single one. There's not one game where they've lost by less than seven points. 
whereas we've been almost the exact opposite. And I know loads of people always talk about the bonus points and all the rest of it, but I think with Sale, there is no question this year that we won, we've won a couple of tight ones and we've lost all of the rest. Um, and, uh, you know, especially at the early part of the season, that did mean there was a lot of ground to make up in the second half. And I think we did valiantly well to get in with a shout and within touching distance of the top four. Uh, we knew, I think, deep down that we were, uh, didn't deserve to be a top four side. Um, but I think if we'd finished in the top six, no one would have argued with that. Bath, I think, of, uh, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, like Bath got in the top six. How did that happen? I think if Sale or Gloucester had finished sick, everyone would have gone, yeah, fair enough. Do you think missing the top six is a blessing in disguise for Sale? It could be, but it could be. It depends how disappointed the lads are. I mean, they've lost three in a row, haven't they? It's not great form to be taken into next season. And it also, you know, it depends who we've got lined up to sign because, you know, we're, we're, we're raped in the league now. Other teams are investing and moving forward again. So, you know, we need to match the investment and beyond you'd say I mean maybe not quite beyond because you'd say that we don't need to faff about for two and a half months that we end the season working out how to play with each other so that should help um, but we certainly need to replace the likes of Haley and Allison. you can't lose that You're not just from a player point of view from, from a cultural point of view I mean that really is pulling a serious heart out of the club it so is, um, it is worth remembering as well that John Ross was effectively captain um, all, all season, really, with Addison being out with injury. But Will Addison was still the official club captain. It has been confirmed now that John Ross is going to be the club captain next season, unsurprisingly. But Addison was. I mean, we're not privy to what happens inside the locker room, and, and, and by all accounts, it's it's um, John Ross and, and McGinty who are the vocal leaders. But you know, it's still the captain that you're losing, and you're losing Mike Haley, who is. A trust, you know, a, a trusted servant of the club who's played a uh, hundred times in, uh, over the course of five seasons. And those are big players to lose, and I think it's, it's hard to say exactly whether or not the top six is a necessity for the players that Sailor are, uh, are targeting. More on that later. But you do think that maybe if, if Sailor struggling to get some players over the line in terms of signing, maybe having Champions Cup rugby would just be. Another another charm to, to, to lure these players and, and finally get their name on the dotted line. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I can see what you mean by you know we've got another season where we can concentrate all out getting the top six because actually it's broken. We'll, I'm sure we'll hit on this in review, but this has broken our sort of run. Actually, this is a year we should have got snuck into sick because we always nearly get relegated and then come sick, then nearly get relegated, then come sick. Well, last year we nearly got relegated. And this year we should have come sixth in that phase of uh, you know so actually we're, we're, in that case we've underperformed but I think you've got to take into account the lack of investment in the squad over a number of years and how much money is now in silly in the game uh, on player wages and that's the market we're operating in and I think Diamond probably feels a bit uncomfortable in this market with lots of money around he's pulled off O'Connor and uh, well De- O'Connor I think I can understand we probably got him at a re- you know, relatively bargain rate, rate but the clerk obviously was was a, was a great sign John Ross would have been you know followed, followed closely but it does seem to me that we are fishing in a market or fishing in a pool rather that's already been fished um, and uh, because we, we sort of jumped on the Jackson and Alding things which is 
you know, an off-the-cuff, taking advantage of the moment. It's not a strategy to go out and get a fly-half and a 12-stroke, um, 13-stroke, 15, is it? It's a, they're, they're available, let's think about it. So now that, that let's presume that that doesn't happen, for whatever reason, um, well, that's going back to the strategy. Well, what's the strategy? We wouldn't have gone to sign Jackson and Alding if we... You know, we'd already done our business for the year, and and uh, Dimes is in his latest interview said we're focusing on recruiting for the next three or four months, which means it's going to be solely based on Southern Hemisphere players, which I don't have a necessarily an issue with. Um, but I can't imagine that Dimes has been sitting there since the first of December, not you know, or even November last year, thinking about what positions he needed and who he was going to go after and who was available. It says to me that we've been out in the marketplace, and he doesn't like the price tag that comes with some of the players especially the English players um, or we've just missed out people don't want to come to sale who knows it's interesting that you mentioned about the, the, the recruitment for coming exclusively from Super Rugby because I think if you look at sales season as a whole and, and like we'll get onto this in a couple of weeks I personally think top six would have been flattering to deceive a little bit I don't think Sale are a top six team really I think we were we somehow managed to stumble our way through not having a backup fly half for a full season, still only having one loose head prop. There are very serious issues with this squad that I think it would have been a miracle if we'd actually finished the top six. And fair play to the players who do play in week in, week out. But I think the problem is, if Sale finished top six this season, I wouldn't have considered it sustainable. And I'd be very worried about a drop-off next year unless there was substantial more investment in playing personnel. I don't think Sale, they don't need four or five British and Irish Lions to push them into the top six and top four consistently. They need depth players. And what I was worried about was that Sale would finish top six this year, have the extra burn of the Champions Cup, and we'd see a slide. And we wouldn't see this sort of gradual build that a team like Newcastle and Exeter have perfected in recent years. Now my concern, when it comes to the transfers, is that if we're now having to sign lots of players from Super Rugby, are we going to see a bedding-in period again next season? similar to what we saw this year where we underperformed for the first two months and then are playing catch-up because I think for me a few very smart Northern Hemisphere depth signings allow De Klerk and Ross and Strauss and your other stars to, to really kick off straight from the start of the season in September and Sale could easily be a sustainably good top six team for the next two or three years easy and then, then you're looking higher up the table my concern is now for whatever reason, if we're dependent on waiting for a loose head to come from Super Rugby in August or September, how long is it going to be before they're getting meaningful game time? And then we've, we've still got the same issues that we have this year with Ross Harrison playing eight, uh, 75 minutes week in, week out. And then that means the depth issues which have cost sale the top six this season, in my opinion, are still there for the first quarter half of the 2018-2019 season. I think it's it's a bit of a perilous position for, for, for Sale to be in. Am I, am I being too pessimistic? I think you are a little bit, just because most of the squad is still in situ. Um, and so the transition shouldn't be too difficult. I mean, our first choice side is not going to be massively different to what it is now. Um, and therefore, you know, hopefully we can hit the ground running at the beginning of the season and then the new signings can phase in and almost feel like new signings halfway through the year. Which often is a is a massive plus. The you know likes of James Flynn getting back for preseason will be important. I think you know having Taurus and and Orlika on the on the bench hasn't been great. Um, 
But then, yeah, I mean, we, you're absolutely right. We, we do need depth in key positions. We don't need to go silly. Um, but clearly, I think it's a mental thing. If, if there is a name that joins, the team go the team go into the season think we have improved going into this year. <coughs> Therefore, we're even more confident than we were. Whereas then going in with exactly the same squad, which finished eighth, um, against teams that are still investing. I mean, Gloucester are going to be going silly. Um, you know, and we know that it, it, I just think it puts a lot of pressure on getting off to a very good start to the year otherwise doubts can creep in suddenly you lose the first two you lost five on the bounce in the premiership let's let's put the pessimism aside for a little bit let's go back to the game on, on Saturday we, we mentioned Will Addison and, and, and the fact that he played his last game in a sales shirt on Saturday Will Addison going off after 10 minutes is that is there a is there a better perfect microcosm of his entire career in in in, in his performance on Saturday yeah, it was really sad to see, wasn't it? And actually, we were playing quite well with him in the side because it was broken field. We really missed him when he went off. And when he picked up the ball after he'd done his leg the first time, he could see the space in front of him and you could see his eyes light up going, right, I'm going to go off my right here. And he would have caused havoc, I'm telling you, if he'd stayed on. So it was a real, it's a real blow because um, he's one of the few people who can break the line. Yeah, Sam James from View gets through in offloads and, and, and things like that. Um, so I think that that was that was a big loss for us losing him, um, and it's very sad to see him go out in that manner. But as you said, we've seen him hobble off um, on a number of occasions. I hope that the Pro 14 treats him well uh, because they, they they do they are able to rotate their squads and manage their manage their people a lot better, and it might suit him quite well at Ulster. Um, and I hope he plays for Ireland. Yeah, he's a top man. Every time he's played for Sale, despite his body being made of kind of, you know, sort of sawdust or whatever, <laughs> he, he, he puts his body on the line every time he's played for Sale. And I think you actually saw the impact of Addison defensively after he went off during that game on Saturday because as, as good as Luke James has performed this year, in a cell shirt, you know, thrust into duty, arguably before he was ready. He, let's just say, he struggled with Manitoulangi. That that's that's not yeah. a surprise. Manitoulangi is one of the most destructive ball carriers in in, in in the in the entirety of rugby. And I think, time after time, you saw that twelve thirteen challenge just completely open up as soon as Ford or Youngs put Tuolangi into space with the ball because. We, we, we missed Addison's defensive now and we, we missed him I, I think he's still the sort of player who's a bit high risk in terms of uh, tackling for me I don't think he needs to jump out of the line as much as uh, as he needs to but I think you do miss that against someone like Tuolangi who is obviously someone you have to stop before he gets built up ahead of, spe- ahead of steam and gets going and I think that was a big reason why Sale struggled defensively along the back line on Saturday was because we lost Addison after 10 minutes or whatever it was and all of a sudden we have Sam James uh, who by the way we, I, I found out today missed the most tackles of any player in the uh, the Premiership this season according to, um, according to some stats that were released earlier today Sam James who is a, a solid defensive player but it's certainly not his forte and obviously Luke James who at 19 years old is very physically outmatched by, by Manitou Alangi I thought it was a very key reason why Sale struggled to contain Vianu, Tuolangi, Johnny May, all the rest, because we, we like that physical and pacey back to sort of match match them in both regards. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And Matt Tate showed on the Leicester side, you know, how that sort of cover defence is so important and organisation. I thought he was excellent defensively. Um, and talking about stats, seeing as you've just pulled one out, shall we listen for listen to our good friend Alex? Unfortunately, Alex can't with us today because I believe he's trekking somewhere in the Yorkshire Dales. But yeah, shows his diligence and commitment to the pod by pre-recording his famed stats segment. And he's going to take you through the next few minutes, to un- and so we can get a, a more insightful view of sales loss Leicester on Saturday. Hello, and welcome to a feature which I call Alex tries his best to find one positive stat from that Leicester game. Yes, sales on field display was marred by frustration, and I'll try to rein it in as much as possible here, but I can't promise anything. Let's just base up to bare facts: fifteen penalties conceded, thirty-four missed tackles, fourteen turnovers conceded. These are where sales lost the game. Silly errors and poor discipline. The penalties, 6 of the 15 came at scrum time, indicative of how Leicester's forward dominance stopped all sales momentum in their tracks. A further 3 came from collapsing the mall and 1 from a line-out offence. In fact, let's just cut to the chase. Of sales 15 penalties, 15 were conceded by forwards. It's reflective of how dominant Leicester's pack was on the day and how important it is for sales to strengthen next season. Personally, I don't doubt any of the ability of sales forwards, but our lack of depth has really showed as those players who've been putting in 80 minutes a week finally burnt out under a scorching sun. Tackles were more balanced between the squad, in that only 6 of the 23 who played didn't miss any. John Ross was the only sale player to register double figures for completed tackles with his 15, but he and AJ McGinty missed 5 apiece to contribute to a team tackle success rate of 77%. It's really not good enough from sale and hopefully something we'll see um, will improve with a bit more squad depth and a bit more fitness. Turnovers were mostly sales own doing again, six from drop balls and one from a bad pass. Unforgivable on such a dry day, but probably representative of a desire from sales to try too much too soon and good less pressure in defence. There must be some positives somewhere. Well, we made more metres than our opposition, as we always do, 502 to Leicester's support in 29. A magnificent 73 from Fafterclerk, supported by 77 from Mike Haley, although 36 of those were running from fullback kick returns. 66 metres from Marlon Yard, which I'm pretty sure is just his try, and 46 metres from AJ McGinty. I'll try and keep the set piece quick, as Leicester completely had sail on the ropes here. Leicester won four penalties at scrum time to our one. I don't really want to say any more about that, but we've already talked about it in the penalties. We got battered. Lineouts were a surprisingly poor standard this week again. Three lost of the 12 sale had, and we didn't steal any. Weber threw six out of seven, which is a pretty good return. Mark Jones, three out of five. It only leaves me to say, Tommy, Tommy, wherefore art thou, Tommy? So, that's really a conclusion to a disappointing statistical end to match the disappointing rugby. Sales performance this week was littered with errors, and it's pretty obvious where it all went wrong. There's only so much I can pull out. We had 49% of possession in territory, a minority as always, but on paper we had enough to beat Leicester and it's really our own errors and pressure up front that's cost us. As a final perk, player of the week, and for me probably player of the season, but we'll talk more about this in uh, the season review pod, goes to John Ross. 15 tackles, 16 carries and 36 metres. Stats can't sum up how good he is for sale. But it is nice to see him make more than an average of one metre per carry for once. And I think the dry ground will suit him. And I think we'll see a massive season from him next season. A massive thanks again to Opta for everything they've done for us this season. We massively appreciate it. It's been a really good season and we've loved having that insight into the game. 
Uh, we'll be back with Stats for Sales Top Poor Push in 2018-19. See you then. And that's officially it. Alex has put the perfect bow on sales 2017-2018 season. We keep teasing it. We are going to do a season review in a couple of weeks. But before that, we did want to chew the fat on the rest of the rugby that is going to be taking place over the summer. Unfortunately, just because sales season over doesn't mean the premiership's over. And James, who's going to win it? Who's going to win it all? Well, do you know what? I've got a sneaky suspicion that Saracens are just hitting on a bit of confidence at the right point of the season. And um, especially if, if, if Mako and etc. Uh, Owen Farrell think they might not be touring this summer. They know that they can put everything into into it. And we know that back-to-back premierships are extremely, extremely rare. So I do think it's uh, be a big call for, for Exeter. I think it will be a Saracens Exeter final. And I think that Saracens will sneak it. Yeah, so let's just go through the, the, the player fixtures now that they've been confirmed. It's Exeter versus Newcastle at Sandy Park. And then Saracens versus Wasps at the Alliance. So you're predicting Saracens to beat Wasps and Exeter to beat Newcastle. And then Saracens over Exeter in the final. Yeah. I find it quite difficult to to uh, argue with. As much as I'd like to, I think you know. You, you look at you look at Exeter versus Falcons. It's been a Cinderella story for Newcastle this season, but you do feel like it's going to be a bridge too far. You know, it's a step too soon. It's, they're a very good team, but it's so difficult to to bet against Exeter at home. And then Saracens Wasps, two very contrasting styles. But we, we've seen this one a few times, and and Saracens. For all their defensive acumen, they do have a lot of offensive panache, and, and Wasps are a very talented team with the ball in hand. But I think there, there are definitely holes to exploit there. Saracens have been there and done it so many times; they have the experience, and they've had these moments against Wasps in the last couple of seasons on the way to Premiership and European glory. They're kind of hard to, to argue. I mean, I, I think it might be a bit closer in the final. I think it's it's going to be the two best teams in the country by by far. Playing out what we'd hope to be is, you know, a glorious spectacle in front of a sold-out Twickenham in glorious late May sunshine. But I think I, I, you're absolutely right, James. Bats about premierships are very difficult to, to secure, and I, I have a sneaking suspicion Saracens might do it as well. Right, so I know, I know. All it takes is Alex not to be here, and all of a sudden we get on like a house on fire. And what about uh, the Champions Cup final? Was it Leinster against Racing? Is it? probably should have checked this before, before we came on uh, there. No, I think it is. I think it is. I think it's difficult to look too much beyond Leinster, um, especially Racing. Of, they've lost uh, Maxime Machineau, um, who is their heartbeat, really. I think it's a tough ask for, for Racing, although the likes of Pat Lambie is, are in fantastic form. Um, but I think that Leinster just... Just, it's just what is their season? They're, they're so fantastic to watch. Last one, Gloucester versus Cardiff, the biggest game of all three. Challenge Cup final Friday night. I think, I think the Gloucester should I mean they should win it. Uh, Cardiff are not a very good side, I don't think. Um, but they, they both rested their, their, their players in the last rounds of their competitions. So they're, they're, they're going all out. Their whole season is based on this game. Um, and uh, it could be a good one. 
Should be a good one. Uh, very quickly, actually, on the European finals, um, just wanted a quick note. If uh, if you aren't aware, this is the first time that the Champions uh, and Challenge Cup finals are being played in Spain at uh, the Sam Sam Mame in Bilbao, I believe it is. Uh, which I've I've long been a supporter of of trying to take this spectacle of the Champions Cup final, really turn it into this you know continental wide event, and I really really hope that we see strong ticket sales and, 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 a, and a great sort of atmosphere at the game in Bilbao because I think northern Spain especially it, Spain is a country that is really beginning to open itself up to rugby you only have to look at uh, how close uh, Spain have come to qualifying for the 2019 World Cup but I think you know the club rugby scene there is obviously still in its infancy but northern Spain especially on the border with, with France is, is an area that is ripe for expansion of, of the global game and I really hope we see this this spectacle that does uh, European rugby justice uh, in Bilbao Yeah and uh, it's worth noting as well that uh, Perpignan have just been uh, promoted from the Pro De. obviously uh, a Catalan uh, team um, so you know the link there with, with, with Spain is important and top flight rugby you know really not far far away um, from Bilbao that's very exciting times for, for the global game uh, speaking of keeping uh, rugby global everyone's off on their uh, the summer holidays soon and that includes England who tour South Africa we're going to focus mainly on England, but we are going to touch on some of the other internationals uh, in, a, in a minute. But I, there's been a lot of talk about who might be included. Will the Lions players be rested? Will Jones opt for a more experimental team to play South Africa, knowing that the 2019 World Cup is coming up and some of his some of the mainstays, you know, the sort of James Haskells, the Dan Coles, might no longer be in, uh, in sort of peak performance for, uh, for, for, for when the World Cup comes around. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, maybe Cipriani goes, maybe Owen Farrell is captain, maybe Owen Farrell's rested. Do you have a, a sort of a rough idea of how you see England's squad being formed? And do you think there's any chances for some sale players to get in to Eddie Jones' team? Um, so I think this is a dangerous one for Eddie Jones because I think that there's a real chance that the South Africans will feel revitalised, but if they do recall a lot of their... <sighs> Uh, European-based players, it's going to take time to form a team. And also, I think that the, the, the quotas that they operate in will remain. So even if they're re- returning players from Europe, they'll still be operating within the quota system, um, which I think at the moment is still still a bit of a drag, but ultimately I think will pay dividends um, eventually. Um, in terms of resting players, I think if I was Eddie, I probably would look to rest as many of the Lions players as possible. They have been fatigued this year. I, I, I would leave Farrell at home. Um, I, I'm telling the the only thing I want him to think about is winning the 29 World Cup, and that is it. Um, Mako needs a rest, even though he won't want one. But there's other players that are returning. People like Billy Bunapola needs like uh, you know sort of game time on the pitch. So if he gets through the semi-final and final for Saracens, then I would take him to South Africa. Um, lots of talk about you know, sort of foreign-born players uh, being brought into the England team who are kind of like, you know, sort of mid-20s, mid to late-20s in, in some cases. And big questions being asked about our our own systems here. You know, the in- England 20s have, are always in the, either in the final or win the competition um, and have been doing right back through to about 2010, 2011. So these players are the same age group as some of these foreign-born players we're bringing in. And these are players that have sort of knowingly been let go of their home countries or have left for you know more money in, in Europe. You know, so they're talking about Brad Shields, 
um, going. Um, hasn't even played a game in the Aviva Premiership yet. Uh, John O'Ross, obviously, um, is pretty much, you know, is South African as they come, really. Um, and Jason Woodward, talking about the talent at Gloucester, um, also going as a full-back option. You know, these people are sort of 25, 26, 27. Um, you know, they've come through other people's systems. And I, I mean, you know me, I sort of sit on my high horse about this kind of thing. But I'm not you telling me that Jason Woodward is definitely test match class and Mike Haley definitely isn't. Now, my instinct is that Mike Haley probably isn't consistent enough to operate at test level, and he probably lacks a bit of high-end pace. You know, he's got great footwork, but does he have high-end pace? And his, is his kicking game top quality? So I can argue, I'll absolutely have a conversation about whether Mike Haley is test match class, but have we seen that Jason Woodward definitely is? And so, you know, meanwhile, Mike Haley's gone over to Ireland to play test rugby, potentially, and we're calling up a 26-year-old Kiwi who played for the Melbourne Rebels and then Bristol and then Gloucester. And it just, it does feel a little bit wrong. I'm all up for picking the best available side. I know the rules are the rules, but I think it's fair game to ask questions about our academy system, how premiership teams are bringing them through and how England selection is taking place. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially on the, on the point about the the sort of issues it shows with England's academy system because I have absolutely no problem with England selecting Brad Shields. He is committed to coming to England. He's signed a contract with Wasps. Uh, both his parents are English, so he's effectively half English even though he was born in New Zealand. I think Brad Shields is a very, very good player and I think he is probably a test-caliber player. However, it is a bit concerning that he a lot of people are hailing him as the saviour of England's tour to South Africa. This idea that he's going to come in, he might even be the captain. You know, that's been suggested. You know, this this leadership, this this acumen, the, the sort of the, the sort of skill set that he brings. He's sort of being hailed as this. He's going to parachute in as a, as a saviour of sorts for for England's five year back row crisis. And I think that's the issue. I don't have a problem with 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 Brad Shields or John O'Ross or Jason Woodward being in the England team, but I think it is a bit concerning what that. England are dependent on someone like them or Piers Francis or these relatively untested Southern Hemisphere players to sort of come in and, and fill the big gaps in, in in England squad. And I think it is a little bit mercantile. A little, it does reek a little bit of parochial think, thinking. You know, can, can we necessarily say that Ben Teo has done anything that any other twelve could do? in an England shirt you know I think Ben Terry is, is an absolutely fantastic player when he, and he does fill a role within uh, within the England setup. but I don't necessarily think he was so talented and so valuable to England at a test level that he had that his he, it was more important to include him in the team than giving you know 20 caps to uh, someone who, who could now be that test level player at two or three years younger I think, that, I think that's the concern for me as I want to see an English team, an England team that is predominantly English, that is predominantly young. I think you know, Jones got it absolutely right when he went to Argentina two year, uh, last, last year in blending a mix of uh, youth and experience. And I think it's important to to place importance on that, especially because if if, if Billy Vinopola gets injured again or ends up playing in the NFL, Sam Simmons might have to be your starting number eight. And is it more important to get him game time in South Africa? Than it is to make sure Brad Shields gets capped by England and, and, and can maybe play a role in for the next two or three years. This is the sort of dilemma I wrestle with, and I think it is important that Jones understands that it, 2019 is obviously been considered his limit. That's probably when he's going to 
to finish his uh, his duties as England coach. But I think it is important that he lays the groundwork for, for, for beyond that. And I don't necessarily think playing 26-year-old John O'Ross or 26-year-old Brad Shields is, is more important than playing Sam Simmons in, a, in an environment that will be radically different from what he has at Exeter. I think it is important to... Um, to mix and match and see an experimental team and like you said rest Farrell less Bruno Polar make sure these players are perfectly ready for Japan in 2019 yeah because I, I, I think we've had a poor Six Nations and yeah there was some chat about our attacking game and things but it was brilliant in Argentina anybody who watched any of the games in Argentina it was some of the best rugby matches I've ever seen from both sides I mean it was just like sevens with 15 people so um, I don't buy it I think that England have a lot of talent <clears throat> a lot of them went away with the Lions and drew with New Zealand there I think and there were, none of them are sort of hanging on age wise bar you know I think Haskell won't make it to the World Cup but he wasn't you know first choice really in the last 12 months um, Cole will go the question is whether he'll still be first choice then he might be a solid backup you know and I think that's absolutely fine we've just seen him just destroy Ross Harrison so I, I think with the the talent is there for England to win the next World Cup. It's about can you manage the talent and can you bring through enough depth for you to get your squad to the World Cup and also get two or three people emerging in key positions to put pressure on the on 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 the old guard. So yeah, you're looking at who can really come through and put pressure on Dan Cole. We thought that was going to be Kyle Sinclair. Hasn't happened in the last 12 months. It's been no further on than we were 12 months ago. We're probably further back actually at tight end. Um, Chris Robshaw uh, the flanker positions are definitely a concern um, and behind Vinnie Pola, Vinnie, Billy Vinipola and you know we had Nathan Hughes and unfortunately were injured at the same time and Sam Simmons hasn't been able to translate his form to the international arena uh, but that's because for Exeter he's your X factor you know they play massive flankers you know when you've got Dave Ewers and Don Armand as your two flankers you can have Sam Simmons as number eight um, so for, for England, I think it's right that they're, that they're going to pick bit from the best of the bunch. Um, I don't think from a sale point of view to move on to your previous question, um, I think I wouldn't be surprised if John O'Ross did go. Um, I also wouldn't be surprised to see him called up to the Springbok squad either. <laughs> that could, um, that so could make... It could go either way. That could make for a very interesting tug of war and, and add a really interesting dynamic to, to England's tour to South Africa. If two weeks prior to the... Uh, Two weeks prior to the first test, you have yeah, both the English and South African unions sort of having a tug of war over who gets to play John O'Ross as their uh, their blindside flank. I think that that had a very spicy element to uh, to the rivalry. Yeah, absolutely. I think also you know looking at Tom Curry, I think he was given his chance against Leicester. Tough game really to be starting, but I don't think we've seen anything from Tom to definitely get himself on that plane to South Africa I think the media have wanted it I think Eddie Jones would have wanted it I think if he if he, if he takes him it's a massive call um, because Ben Curry's had a brilliant season and uh, deserves to be on the plane to South Africa in my view uh, Tom was, uh, you know it's his turn to be the one that's struggling coming back from injury uh, and, I, and I think I don't understand why Ben Curry wasn't in the Six Nations squad no. can't, can't get my head around it um, so I think he, he's got a chance anybody else you can think of what about Solomon Yard I think it's it's a difficult one because I think yes on Tom Curry I think if if Jones picks Tom Curry on on his form over the last sort of two months knowing what Ben Curry's done it would it'd be a head scratcher it's it's a head scratcher since 
Joe's made the decision to only pick one of them anyway. And I think if he only picks Tom Curry as opposed to Ben Curry for this tour to South Africa, I'd be I'd be very disconcerted with Jones's thinking because there's no reason to just if you're going to take Tom, you might as, you have to take Ben. It's 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 that simple in my eyes. Um, I yeah, think you, you look no, you look at the rest of the sales squad. I think I think Sam James brings something at 13. We've said this a few times that there, that very few other players do. Uh, I think he's a better prospect than Joe Marchand. I think he's a better prospect than uh, Henry Slade, as you pointed out. Henry Slade is, is 25 and he's still not cracked the England squad full-time. No one really needs, seems to know whether he's better off as a 13 or a 10. And I think Sam James is a, is a sort of more dependable player uh, in most aspects. But the way the wind is blowing would suggest that it's going to be Marchand and Joseph and, and, and Slade who go at, at 13. And if his tackling stats really are as bad as they say you are, he ain't going to go south. I've said Sam James should go because I think attacking-wise, he's been absolutely fantastic this year and his skill set is incredibly high. Um, but if he's a revolving door, you don't want Willie LaRue running through it. No, no, of course. Yeah, if Willie LaRue's called up. I mean, talking about South Africans, you know, I think the clerk... The clerk Hang on, I'm not, finished. For South I'm, Africa. I'm not finished with my England players yet. Sorry, mate. I was going to say... Uh, there's I've been got a... my dinner cooking here. You've got two minutes. Time starts now. There's been a lot of talk about Ross Harrison maybe getting England caught. We, we pointed out earlier, I think Ross Harrison is a superb player and he's a credit to the club. I don't think he's a tough caliber player yet. I think you look at the way Ellis Genge dances around defenders and gets on top of players at the scrum, rightly or wrongly. I think it's clear that Genge is, is, is more developed in that regard. I think Alec Hepburn as well is... is yeah. he's, 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 he's on track to easily be the sort of heir apparent to Mako whenever Mako starts to see his international commitments taper off. Hepburn is an absolutely superb player. Um, and then lastly on Solomona and, and Yard, I think um, I think Solomona's had a great season, but I think Yard has had just, just as strong a season. And, and to be honest, I think on current form, and maybe with some of the controversy around Solomona, maybe Yard would be the better pick. If, if there's, you know, I think he's at this point they'd only be going as sort of a third or a fourth depth option. I don't think they're going to be pushing for a start, but I think if you're looking at taking the two of them, I'd maybe be more inclined to go for, for, for Marlon Yard over over Danny Solomona. And say also have a couple of South Africans who might make the trip as you were getting on to James, Fafta Clerk. Um, he, he's the one that keeps coming up in all these news articles saying Razi Erasmus is going to pick European-based players. Uh, I think he'd be foolish not to. I don't think there is anyone in South Africa at the moment um, who comes close to bringing what the clerk does? I think Rudy Page is their starting um, uh, scrum half at the moment, and it's it's just there, there seems to be a drop off. The clerk will lose you some games, but it'll also win you them as well. And I think him or maybe Francois Houhard, but even then, I think it's clear that the clerk is 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 the the preferred option both internally uh, and, uh, and and externally in terms of South African rugby circles. Yeah, I mean Houhard's retired now. He's just retired. Uh, fallen out with the Springbok camp after last summer um, and uh, I think it's Russ Cronier the, the, the Lions 9 who's been playing but they, they haven't really been able to replace the Prayer and uh, um, uh, Pienaar you know yeah. the, those two people being in the same generation they, they, they haven't really had anyone behind I mean I wouldn't be surprised if the clerk is off the bench um, as an impact 9 um, but he, he he has to be picked by the spring box. Whether the real is the other player who who keeps getting sort of mentioned, um, Dwayne Van Marlin, 
is uh, he's actually going back to the Stormers um, from Toulon. He actually qualifies for the Springboks anyway. But those are just a couple of players that uh, that are being sort of hotly tipped um, to 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 make the tour. Really, um, one name as well. If you are watching any of the, the rugby and haven't heard of him before, just keep an eye out, out for uh, Kerwin Bosch, the uh, Natal Sharks fullback. Uh, I think. So there is obviously a lot of talent in South Africa and uh, a lot of players that I'd like to highlight. Mark, Mark and Marks, the Lions hooker as well, although it looks like he's going to miss the Test Series. The, the, I know, that's a shame because he is the best two in the world at the moment. Him and Augustin Creevy, fantastic players. It is a shame that we might miss out on him participating in the series. But I think, yeah, if you're looking for, for players to watch, obviously the clerk, obviously LaRue, um, but keeping out for Kerwin Bosch as well, only 20 years old and he's looking like the next prodigy of, of South African rugby. Uh, and I think we're going to finish the pod for the last time this 2017-18 season with a little bit of transfer news. We're going to talk really, really quickly about Paddy Jackson and Stuart Alding. We made our thoughts very clear last week, I think, and we actually want to say a big thank you to everyone who uh, responded so positively um, to the podcast. We had a lot of people saying you know, that we it was a very mature way to approach the topic and uh, we made a lot of sensible points and we understand that it is a divisive topic uh, and people will have dissenting views but we just want to try and approach this uh, topic with a sort of maturity and uh, and delicacy that it requires. The latest then that we've heard is that these deals are going ahead. Um, it's been on again, it's been off again. We were told by a, a club source uh, over the weekend uh, that apparently the deals are on, they are happening, uh, and that the rumours that were reported this week that Alding and Jackson were supposed to be in Carrington for a medical last Wednesday are true. It was only due to a uh, <clears throat> notable sponsor that isn't the AJ Bell uh, intervening and, and requesting a, a sort of a meeting with Dimes to express their concerns over the signings that ultimately stopped the players coming in. But apparently, that deal is is going to occur, and the sponsor discomfort is uh, currently just a, a small impediment. That's the latest we've heard of it. Obviously. You can't take our word at gospel because these things do change and unfortunately we're not always kept in the loop but that is our understanding of it at the moment. Uh, James, do you have any thoughts on the latest developments in the the Olding and Jackson um, controversy? Well, I just think my main observation is that we've obviously lost complete control of the story so it's taken on a complete life of its own. We've kind of had to reject it as happening two or three times. Yeah, we... I think... If the club had been able to get their story out there first and been able to make the case for why we're doing it and, you know, that we understand the, the difficult views on either side, but we're doing it for these reasons and this is, this is you know, then it was possible they could have ridden the storm. It was still going to be a storm, um, but it's possible they could have ridden it. Now, you know, it's, it's again, you know, we're sort of just taking a beating from the media, aren't we? And, I know that we like this bunker mentality at sale, but it is becoming a little bit of a scorched earth type I think, uh, policy. I think it shows just how poorly the club's PR policy has failed in that when Sell released their statement on Tuesday night denying uh, that the rumours regarding Jackson Holding were true, the fact that that was so widely panned on Twitter uh, and elsewhere by accredited journalists, this is people from the Telegraph and the Mail and the Sun uh, and some of the more notable online blogs, you know, you know um, uh, Planet Rugby and, and, and some of these other ones. The fact that these 
professional journalists were pointing to the fact that Sale made the exact same statement about Fafta Clerk and James O'Connor basically this time last year and that we ended up signing both of them a couple of weeks later just shows you how poor sales management of this whole fiasco is I don't know whether or not it's bunker mentality I don't know whether or not it's somebody in the sale camp not wanting to uh, admit that they've been beaten to a scoop or an announcement or, or whatever but it is it's embarrassing that we are the laughing stock of club PR I think it's as simple as that but you know what's so disappointing is the club have done so many fantastic things this year you know the game day experience has transformed the 100 club thing is the best thing the club has ever done building us into a proper region our community programme has always been the best you know um, we've, we've had you know LGBT plus events you know all sorts of things the club has done a brilliant job but at the end of the day it's about perception it's perception of how we're viewed as a brand that ultimately is we are a business like and like any business you have to have a strong brand and things like this they just undermine it well that's absolutely it I, I think it's important to highlight the, the enviable work that Sale have done in the community with LGBT inclusivity with uh, disability programs Sale do a lot of amazing work behind the scenes but that doesn't get reported because it isn't particularly interesting. You know, at the end of the day, this isn't something that is particularly noteworthy. What is noteworthy is two very controversial figures being linked with the club. The club then denying any interest in uh, in, in those players, and then being mocked because they did the exact same thing this time last year. And I think it is it is it's just it's understandable, but it is very disappointing. And and you're absolutely right, James. You hit the nail on the head. The fact that the club have just failed to control the story, where with a little bit more foresight and a little bit more understanding, I think it would have been very easy for Sale to take what has now become a, a PR disaster and turn it into a very positive story about how Sale are listening to their fans and considering all avenues, but want to make a clear and transparent statement about how they are approaching this matter. Yeah, it's crisis management. You know, I think that this story probably didn't get out from Sale, let's put it. We probably did plan to own the story. Um, and it's got out there through other means and I'm sure people are really pissed off about that at sale but it's then about how you manage the story isn't it and uh, it's been a bit it's been I mean difficult crisis situation from a comms point of view but uh, it's been probably a bit bit disappointing the way we've done it but there we go on to next year yeah and speaking of next year we have a tiny bit of exclusive transfer news for you nothing Nothing ironclad, and again, please don't take us a gospel. However, we have heard from a senior club source uh, over the weekend that Rohan Janzi van Rensburg, the latest on him, is that he has uh, deals in principle with Sale, Gloucester, and his existing contract with the Lions in South Africa. Our understanding of it is that his agent is basically playing the field. Uh, He is aware of all the interest from the various parties and has agreed deals in principle in order to maximises returns I think it is completely understandable from an agent's point of view I'm sure there are no legal ramifications for what he's doing I'm sure everything has been done in a, uh, in a transparent and um, I can't think of the word keeping your head above water making sure you, uh, you don't get in, in, into any trouble we are aware that this has been done in a way that doesn't break any firm commitments the player has made to any of the three clubs but that is our understanding, and that is why there seems to be such a tussle over Van Rensburg services at the moment. Is that because he's 
uh, him and his agent are aware of the interest from all three parties and are currently wrangling to make sure that the player uh, uh, gets the best deal for for both himself and and uh, all his uh, all, all his um, associates, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, he's got the offer to stay in Super Rugby and be based in South Africa until the World Cup, or he can go play Champions Cup rugby with Gloucester, or he can come back to sail where he knows people. That's oh, it might pay. We'll have to pay. We'll have to offer more money. There's no doubt about it. And I think I think it's important. I don't let this sully you on Van Rensburg. It is the, the, the absolutely correct financial decision. He's just look at him and everyone else are just looking out for for themselves and trying to maximise their returns for what is ultimately a short career. And and that is our understanding of it is that Sale have him down on their preseason training list. He is considered effectively to be a member of the squad. However. There is also interest in Gloucester, who probably are thinking the exact same thing about him at the moment, and from the Lions in Johannesburg, who are also thinking the same thing uh, as well. And finally, we're going to end the season with a bang. We have a brand new name for you. It feels like Silla have been linked with so many different players this year that you're probably getting sick of them and, and are having to resort to having a big whiteboard in your living room like I do to keep track of all the different players that we've, uh, we're supposed to be a couple of days away from signing. But the latest we've heard is that Silla are in talks with Lions fullback Andreas Coetzee. That is a Shark Tank podcast exclusive. Andreas Coetzee, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, open field attacking runner uh, would replace Haley very nicely. Yeah, late 20s experience, solid. Uh, but got, got Springbok caps, so he won't be English qualified. <laughs> is that a warning for Eddie Jones in case he's th- thinking of uh, taking someone else instead of Jason Woodward? No, you know, I was more thinking Sale have lost two two homegrown people where we get academy credits for who are English qualified and we just seem to be replacing them with Southern Hemisphere people. So unless, you know, we're going to have to give a lot of game time to the likes of Red Path, etc. next year to make sure we hit the numbers. I think that's, that is a very important uh, dynamic to consider. But given how small sales squad is anyway, in terms of bringing the players, you know, Wilkinson and Redpath, you know, are, are, I've only just turned 18, some more uh, 19 going on 20. You know, these are players that are rolling around the squad and will get the chance to, to, to make appearances. Whereas you look at a team like maybe maybe Saracens a few years ago, maybe Wasp, you know, teams that might have struggled to get these players in because not only do they have a, a team's chock full of Southern Hemisphere stars all their depth players are Southern Hemisphere stars as well what Sale have is a team full of Southern Hemisphere players and then a depth a second or third 15 made up effectively of academy players to allow you to get those those credits through there you go we're going to sign up for the season on that bombshell Andreas Coetzee is uh, apparently in talks with South Sharks Hopefully, when we come back in a couple of weeks, we'll have a few more names to discuss, including uh, uh, Van Rensburg. However, until then, uh, we're going to sign off for the 2017-18 season. It didn't finish the way we wanted it to, uh, but we've got plenty to look forward to over the, over the summer months. So, James, thanks you once again for joining me. Uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the, summer, the summer break, and then I'll see you back for pre-season training at the end of the month. Cheers, mate. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, bring on next season. Top four. Easy. <laughs> <laughs>